Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. It's been well said that in a healthy society that has problems, people ask, what did we do to cause this? In an unhealthy society that has problems, they say, who did this to us? And the Jews are always a candidate. That's columnist George Will, who's featured in a new documentary on anti-Semitism out in theaters across the country on Friday. With us in the studio to discuss that film is its creator, Andrew Goldberg. In 2009, Andrew focused his lens on the resurgence of anti-Jewish hatred around the world and in mainstream media. But after the 2016 election and the Charlottesville rally, where protesters proclaimed the Jews will not replace us, Goldberg felt compelled to return to the topic for an even deeper exploration. In Viral, Four Mutations of Anti-Semitism, Goldberg travels through four countries, the United States, Great Britain, France, and Hungary, to speak firsthand with victims, witnesses, anti-Semites, and high-profile figures including Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Deborah Lipstadt, and AJC Europe director Simone rodin Benziken. In Pittsburgh, he examines the far-right ideas that led to the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue. In Hungary, he looks at the anti-immigration, anti-George Soros, and anti-Jewish propaganda promoted by the government. And in the U.K., he explores the pain caused by the anti-Zionist messages from the U.K.'s Labor Party. The film also explores the repeated violence against Jews in France carried out by Islamists. Andrew, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. So thank you for making this documentary. And I'm curious, can you kind of take our audience back to the original conception of it and how it evolved over time since I believe some events actually transpired in the making of the documentary? Well, shortly after the election, we noticed there was sort of an uptick in anti-Semitic incidents around the country. There were a series of bomb threats, which we know turned out to be bogus, but those caught everyone's attention. And suddenly everyone was noticing things. And shortly after that, a lot of tombstones were desecrated at several different cemeteries. And then the sort of global eyeballs started to notice these things and talk about them more in the press and online. And we immediately thought we should make a film about anti-Semitism. And we didn't know what it would look like or what it would be. I think our initial thoughts were that it would be about the United States. But as we did more and more research, and we knew this was a global issue, we knew it was happening in other countries. But as you unpack these things, you realize that there's an urgency to a Mm -hmm. lot of these stories. And Mm -hmm. so we decided to really expand it and to look at four different situations. Those would be the far right in the United States, the far left in England, in Hungary, where the prime minister has launched a massive PR campaign against a Jewish philanthropist, and in France, where Islamists have been killing uh, Jews in various terror attacks and other violent attacks against Jews to the tune of what unofficial numbers seem to be more than 3,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been making documentaries and doing journalism for 20 years, um, as have I, Uh, and I was a religion reporter for 15 years in Chicago. And I will tell you, when I came here, I was stunned by um, just how much people hate Jews. And I'm curious, you know, I, I mentioned this to a, a former colleague at the Tribune recently, and his response, he's in his 80s, he said, well, of course, you grew up at a different time. Uh, you know, it, it's no surprise to me. But yeah, of course, you didn't realize. I'm just curious if this was a real shock to your system as you were doing the reporting. The idea that Jews are hated was never foreign to me. I mean, keep in mind, I'm 51. And so 
I grew up where the Holocaust was not that far off. I mean, I was raised in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was still 30 years old, but it was not as it is now 60 plus years old where, you know, the next generation of people don't even know it was there. Um, growing up in Chicago, being Jewish was um, it was not something to be celebrated, at least among my friends and among my peers. Um, I was made fun of for it a few times. It wasn't I didn't sort of grow up in the midst of it. But the Holocaust was connected to us in a way that it was very, very real. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, I understood that Jews were absolutely despised. And, you know, I I started making films in my first film that had anything to do with Jewish subjects was around 2002 or so. And, you know, it was about Eastern European Jewish life before the war. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, you know, old black and white footage of shtetls, of Warsaw, of of what we might call the Yiddish world. Mm -hmm. And that whole world is utterly destroyed in Eastern Europe and in Europe and in Russia. And um, that made it pretty easy to see. And in doing that film, I started to learn about it. I ultimately made a film about anti-Semitism in the media in the Middle East at one point. Mm -hmm. And you realize that it is is widespread. There's anti-Semitism where there are Jews. There's anti-Semitism where there are not Jews. There's anti-Semitism among people who are friends with Jews. Mm -hmm. So my awareness of this has grown. So in other words, you entered into this project knowing there was a history of this, but you had never seen it kind of in the current context as well, to such I a had degree? Not it the way, I had not seen it the way I see it now. I, when I made a film in 2007 on anti-Semitism in the, in the, in the uh, Arab and Islamic world, particularly North Africa and, and, and the Middle East, I didn't focus that much on Europe and the U.S. Right. At the time, anti-Semitism in the U.S. was a very minor issue compared to what it is now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it was minor because there were plenty of people experiencing anti-Semitism, but we didn't have it to the magnitude um, and we didn't have the Internet the way we do now. Right. But I knew that it was alive and well in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And that was surprising to just see just how deep it is, just how woven into the fabric of conversation and media it is. Yeah. I was interviewing some kids in Egypt on the street and I said to them, what are Jews? They said, Jews are Satan. Jews are evil. Jews should die. Mm-hmm. I said, what if a Jewish kid was walking right here across the street and got hit by a car? They said, we would call an ambulance. These two ideas existed right next to each other. And that's what's so interesting. Mm -hmm. One is in the abstract. One is in the Mm -hmm. Mm day-to-day. Would you say that abstract versus day-to-day is what's also infecting Western Europe? United States, this wave of anti-Semitism that we're seeing, or is it is it very different? I think they cross over. So, yeah. for example, in Hungary, there's virtually no violence against Jews. Mm-hmm. In Hungary, a survey showed that 40 percent, 42 percent of Hungarians held at least one or more anti-Semitic views. Does that mean that the people, by and large, are anti-Semites? Probably not, but it means that the numbers are higher. Those numbers were higher than they were anywhere else in Europe, or mm-hmm. give or take a country. How many countries are there in Europe? A lot, right? Yeah. So... But there's no violence against Jews. No physical violence. That's what I mean. No physical violence against Jews. But those lines do tend to cross over at points. Yeah. And so the fear is that it can translate these nationalist movements. So in Hungary, just to give some context, the government has launched a huge campaign against George Soros. Mm -hmm. It's on mute right now. It's not running right now. But it ran not too long ago during the European Union elections. It came back up again. I asked one of the spokespeople of Hungary, will it come back? And he told me that it would come back in a very consistent way. So the whole idea that the Hungarian government has put forth is that this Jewish billionaire, George Soros, is out to flood the nation with Muslim immigrants. And since Muslim immigrants in the eyes of the Hungarian government are bad, you, the Hungarian citizen, the white Christian Hungarian citizen, are in danger. And you're in danger because of a Jew. So here's these people are all worked up about a Jew who actually isn't doing anything like this, Mm -hmm. but 
Yet at the same time, they're not vandalizing all the you know Jewish shops. They're not beating up Jews and what have you. Right. Although there are, I've heard some rumblings that a little of that has happened. Okay. So we'll have to see. But I'm no expert on the data. Right. Well, I think that's the argument. I mean, that's the argument Deborah Lipstad makes in the film, for example. It starts with words. It starts with comments and then does eventually escalate. That's the danger right. of, of not addressing it and nipping it in the bud when you see it. Well, I think that's here, right? So I think that in America, we've seen rage on the internet translate into violence. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the hatred in Hungary is really a government media campaign, which took place on TV, on the radio, on the internet, but also on billboards outside. It was like an all-encompassing life. You would drive down the street and you'd be bombarded with it. Here, uh, this anti-Semitism isn't billboards. I mean, there's a, we'd see them occasionally, but it's all on the Internet. And people get on the Internet, it's sort of like you and your computer. You lock yourself in this little space, and then you start to get worked up and you start to hate. And right. so we see that not all, but many of these violent attacks in the United States are people who sort of incubated these ideas on the Internet. You raise a good point. The billboards in Hungary, that was the, that's been the main vehicle of communication there for that Soros campaign. But I'm curious, what about social media? What about the comments and violence on social media? Is it just as rampant in places like Hungary as it is here? Well, so the makeup and the nature of the of the campaign in Hungary, we didn't break down. So I don't know what percentage of it, it certainly was on social media. And not only was it on, I mean, social media is a place where the people can share about it, right? right? So in addition to whatever the government put on social media, because the government had all these different forms. They had radio, they had TV, they had billboards, they had magazines, they had social media. Mailings. 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 Right. They had mailings, <laughs> which is in the film. Mm-hmm. Um How much of their media mix was the Internet? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But if you're a person with anti-Semitic views, you can't do anything with a billboard. Well, you actually some people did write hateful messages on billboards with magic markers and paint. They actually vandalized them. But by and large, the billboards are um, you don't interact with them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You you, You and the billboard don't post against, you know, back and forth. A TV commercial, you don't respond to that. The Internet is where everybody took their hatred and their dislike of George Soros and they brought it to the Internet. And mm-hmm. I think that's a place where you would see a lot more of this anti-Jewish rhetoric. The Internet is where it becomes the people's action, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. the government. Right. You have a section in the film that talks about the brief history of, of blaming Jews. And you talk about the films that you've done in the past and the history of this. But one critique of the film that I've read is that it doesn't include enough historical context. Now, I hear this critique all the time. As a journalist, you only have so much space or time, right, to address the whole of a situation. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on whether to include more history or the trajectory. Mm -hmm. The history of anti-Semitism is extremely complex. It grows out of misinterpretations, if that's a word, of people misinterpreted biblical scripture. Mm -hmm. It's changed and it's morphed throughout the centuries throughout Europe. If you want to talk about how it's been a part of the story of Christianity, you get into a very thorny and complicated history, which takes a long time to get in Mm -hmm. and out of. Now, take that for a minute. And think about, we have limited shelf space in our movie. I always say to people, a movie's not a casserole. (laughs) But take that for a minute and notice that in the film, we have that history. We have extensive history of the civil rights movement in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have history of the entire Orban campaign and where that came from in Hungary and who Mm -hmm. Orban was. We talk all about uh, migration and the history of colonialism in France Mm -hmm. as to give the backbone of that. In England, we talk about the Labor Party going all the way back to 2008. What we don't do is this deep analysis of Christian history. But my response is also this. If I make a film about racism and about how African-Americans are being shot in the street by police, do I need to tell you the history of why blacks are disliked by racists in this country? Mm -hmm. If I talk about misogyny, do I need to tell you the history of why people are misogynists? 
to me, and the same goes for LGBTQ Americans. No one's asking why, uh, why do I need to get into the fact of why trans people are being murdered right now or being beaten up? I don't need to analyze that. Well, that too comes from the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Hatred of uh, homophobia grows right out of scripture, mm-hmm. but I don't need to give that analysis. And so it's a weird, it, we talk about double standards and anti-Semitism, and I don't want to say this is anti-Semitism, but it's almost a reflex that people feel like anything that has to do with Jews, with anti-Semitism, with Israel, has to be held to some kind of second order of scrutiny. And I found that a little bit frustrating. There have been so many debates on college campuses about whether or not Jewish students who are pro-Israel can join feminist marches, LGBTQ right marches, you know, other causes. They feel excluded from those causes because of their Zionist positions. And so that's where intersectionality has come up a lot in conversations here, um, is how do you address that exclusion, even though it's very different causes? Communities have gotten together, and there has not been room for the Jewish issue of anti-Semitism has, for complicated reasons, not been welcome into that group because many in this leftist idea do not like how – they don't like what's going on with the Arab-Israeli conflict. Let's mm-hmm. not even parse the Arab-Israeli conflict. The unfortunate part of this is that, A, Jewish students who have nothing to do with Israel, who are oblivious to Israel, are still being singled out. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very dangerous to, to assume lang- phrases like – Colleges are a battleground. We visited colleges. We spoke to a lot of students. It's a very complicated and mixed bag. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt that on some college campuses, and we don't have hard data on how many or where or what, we have a lot of anecdotes. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of very upset parents. We have a lot of very upset students. But what that actually translates into numbers, we don't know. What we do know is that Jewish students are being asked to somehow be called to task for what Israel is said to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about crying during the interview, and, and there were a lot of emotional interviews in the film. I'll tell you one that for some reason just really got to me was Brad Orsini, the former FBI agent in Pittsburgh. I don't know what it was about our conversation, your your conversation. I felt like I was in the room with him. Um, your conversations with him, but just his recollections of treatment of life, the training that went into protecting those congregants and then what ultimately happened. There was something particularly moving about that. Even though the audience can't see him choking back his tears, let's let them hear him in his own words. And so did the training help? We had 11 dead, shot and killed, massacred in our sanctuary, in our building in a house of worship, in a synagogue. The only thing I could take away from that, whether it helped or not, is we did have people get out. Is he Jewish? He is not Jewish. That's what I thought. He's not Jewish. He's in a, Listen, how often do you see an FBI agent uh, <laughs> get that emotional? Yeah. He's an interesting guy. So he talks about how without getting into too much about how Jewish burial works. But if a Jew is killed in a certain location, you need to clean up all of the tissue, mm-hmm. which is why when we were in the Tree of Life, we were only one of the only, if not the only, camera crew that's been allowed in there since the shooting. Mm-hmm. They ripped up the floorboards where there was blood. And when Brad was explaining to me, he said, in the Jewish tradition, we rip up the floorboards 
We tear out the blood. He's really uh, become a real ally mm. of this issue. Wow. He's a terrific guy, yeah. and he got very emotional. You know, it was a very hard thing for him. He's done thousands of arrests. He'd seen thousands of murders. He was an FBI agent for 30 years or however much, and I think this one was a fundamental change for him. Mm-hmm. He said he walked through there. He said it looked like a massacre. Yeah. It did not look like a murder. And we were in there. There's bullet holes everywhere. I yeah. mean, the place is... Uh, a mess. Yeah. It was very emotional for me to listen to him do that. You don't expect sure. him to do that. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really hard to watch. Last question, what is the takeaway that you hope audience members will have from this film, both Jewish and non-Jewish? I think anti-Semitism is underreported. Mm-hmm. I think that anti-Semitism always seems to mention Israel. Mm-hmm. Every country has human rights problems, but there's this almost obsession with holding Jews accountable for what Israel does or does not do. And I struggle with that. Mm -hmm. There are times that I or anyone else might have great disagreement with the behavior of a state, with the behavior of the Palestinians, with the behavior of Iran, or with the behavior of Sweden. Mm -hmm. But I never hold the individuals accountable for that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had great sympathy for someone who I was talking to from Iraq uh, without ever interest in what, what his government was doing because I knew that I treated him as an individual who had come from a problematic place mm-hmm. and not to compare Israel to Iraq um, in any way. And and if anyone does that, that would be a complete distortion of this. But that being said, my takeaway is that people need to know, they need to be educated and they need to be armed with the proper facts mm-hmm. from which they can make informed decisions. Yeah. Um, and I think that people don't understand anti-Semitism. I think they have a lot of very assumptions. They think there are two kinds of anti-Semitism in the world, the Holocaust and the shooting at Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, there's no room. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. And thank you for making the documentary. It is titled Viral, and it hits theaters nationwide on Friday. Well, right. So it right. opened this Friday just in New York. Right. And then we're rolling across the country through the rest of February, March, and April. Excellent. Okay. We look forward to seeing it in theaters with my friends. I look forward to taking people. Thank you uh, so much. Me. Thank you. On Monday, Israelis will head to the polls for the third time in a year. Will they finally elect a viable government? Times of Israel senior analyst Chaviv Redigur joins us to answer that question. Chaviv, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, unsurprisingly, American Jews are more focused on American politics this week than they are on Israeli politics, but the two have converged in one key way. Was there any reaction this week in Israel to Bernie Sanders, you know, smearing AIPAC on Monday and then on Tuesday night calling Prime Minister Netanyahu a racist? Is that something that registered among the Israeli electorate? I think it was reported but not very prominently. It drew more interest in right-wing media than in left-wing media. But today, actually, we saw uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu asked about that by a reporter at a press conference, and he was very, very um, uh, diplomatic. Sanders said he was a reactionary racist. And Netanyahu just told reporters literally half an hour ago, um, I think he's wrong. You know, that (laughs) that was it. That was the limit of his response. I suspect that Netanyahu is worried about losing one of the key elements of his campaign, which has been he knows how to play the game at the highest levels, right? He 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 knows both how to make friends with an American president and how to make an enemy with an American president and and be effective and how to work with the Russian president. And he's a, he's a statesman on an international level. So uh, the idea that a potential incoming American president might view him uh, as someone untouchable is actually bad for his campaign. 
so he's actually tried to minimize it. And I think we've seen that uh, also in the press. Um, Bernie Sanders' opinion would matter more uh, probably in two weeks when we're not, you know, literally four or five days before an election. That's a perfect segue to something else that I've been wondering, which is, you know, are American politics a factor at all in Israel's elections? Are Israelis looking at Netanyahu's relationship with Trump, like you talk about, and saying, you know, we really need to keep Netanyahu because he really gets Trump? Or conversely, like the Bernie Sanders thing, are they looking at Trump's reelection prospects and saying, you know, Netanyahu has really burnt his bridges with the Democrats and Trump may not be reelected. So it's better for us to kind of start fresh with someone else in the prime minister. Ship, or is that all you know? Kind of too much of a self-centered American way of uh, of looking at things. No, I don't think it's self-centered. Netanyahu has put his relationship with Trump front and center in the campaign to the extent that there are billboards on the sides of tall buildings that take up much of the size of the building of Netanyahu shaking hands with Trump, and that's put up by the Likud campaign. So there's certainly something that Netanyahu has been trying to sell, and Israelis therefore are thinking about it. I think Israelis, two points. One, Israelis know a lot less about American politics than uh, maybe Israeli journalists like myself, who are constantly sort of flying back and forth and interacting with both sides. Israelis don't entirely understand the fight between the Democrats and the Republicans. They don't completely understand why Trump is so despised and why Sanders so worries Republicans and, and maybe even many centrist Democrats. They speak Hebrew amongst themselves, obviously. <laughs> uh, but that's an important point to dwell on, because if you actually take issues that are issues in the American political scene, Israelis have no idea what Americans are talking about. Abortion is not an issue in Israel. There's universal health care. And Netanyahu is to the left of Bernie Sanders on the question of what a state owes its citizens in terms of health care. So there, there isn't really a substantive overlap between American politics, the divides in America and the divides in Israeli politics. And therefore, it's really largely personal. And when you get to these personal questions, I think Israelis believe that Netanyahu, frankly, did well under Obama. Obama was very combative. Obama trusted the Palestinians more than Israelis think he should have. Israelis generally liked Obama the day he was elected, uh, you know, in 2008. He had 70-point approval rating uh, that collapsed into the single digits by 2010 uh, because he was seen by many Israelis as naive, and Netanyahu was seen as managing that well. I don't think the identity of the next American president figures prominently, Netanyahu pushed the idea that he's good friends with the American president as part of his campaign. Now that Bernie Sanders is leading, Netanyahu is pushing it less. He wants mm -hmm. us to think about it less. Yeah. But it's never going to be central. There's so many other issues about Netanyahu personally, about the question of annexation and the Trump peace plan that are more significant in the discussion. Yeah. So Israelis will go to the polls on Monday to vote for the third time in a year. What is one thing, Khaviv, that no one else seems to be paying attention to that you are watching closely to try and analyze how the Israeli elections will play out? Or conversely, maybe it's all just playing out in the open and it is those most important things that you think are the most telling. Um, I could tell you where the campaigns think they stand. Mm -hmm. um, we've reached a kind of stasis. Nothing is moving. The numbers for Likud, the numbers for Blue and White, the numbers for the ultra-Orthodox, uh, Israel Betenu's party, these are all political parties uh, that have all picked sides in this deadlock, in this standoff that's been going for uh, the better part of, of a year now. Um, and the polls show that that is going to remain exactly where it has been for the last year. 
and so there's a kind of war of attrition now underway, where Netanyahu and Gantz, his main competitor, are looking to frame the argument the day after the election. If Gantz comes out with one seat more than Likud, than Netanyahu, you know, 34 to 33, let's say, then Gantz will say, I'm, I'm still ahead and I'm maintaining our victory and we have to just stick to our guns. And Netanyahu, if he comes out, you know, two seats under, he was 30, uh, I believe he was 33 in the April race or and 32 in the September race, and or uh, he's been dropping slowly. And if he shows that he drops more, then Netanyahu will, will have to contend with people in his party coming to him and saying, you know, you're slowly walking us, you know, into decline. So they're both trying to deliver enough seats for their own party to make an argument that the trajectory is up. We're stuck. It's a war of attrition. We've gone through an unprecedented three elections in a row without a government. Israel has never in 72 years had any election that didn't end with a government. And now we've just had two and are likely headed to a third. But each one is going to try and frame it as, I know it's hard, I know it's long, I know it's a slog, stick with me. And therefore, we've seen the campaigns in the last couple of days turn against their own sides. Netanyahu is now actively campaigning on two points. One, Benny Gantz is mentally ill, morally unfit, all kinds of strange things coming out of the Likud campaign that we saw in April and in September, just throwing things at him that never stick, but hoping that they'll be able to depress the vote for him, leave a few people home, and two, turning on other right-wing parties and saying, if you don't vote Likud, we're going to lose this thing. Don't worry about the right-wing Yamina. Don't worry about, you know, even the ultra-Orthodox who have backed Netanyahu and been loyal to Netanyahu. He's even campaigned in their towns and in their constituencies, and they feel betrayed by that, but he is desperate to add one seat, two seats, three seats to Likud. Uh, And we've seen the same on blue and white. They're now actively campaigning against the left to pull some voters from the left to be a little bit bigger than Likud. Welcome to Israeli politics that have become just a very petty, completely non-substantive, there are no real profound policy gaps between the parties, um, a war of attrition. Uh, I have to tell you that both Likud and Blue and White, the campaigns are already gearing up, staffing, and working on the assumption that we're going to a fourth election. Wow. So that brings me to my final question for you. You know, I know predictions are a dangerous game. We've heard from your colleague, Raul Woodliff that there's a betting pool each round in the uh, Times of Israel newsroom. I think he mentions it because, if I understand correctly, he's won the last two. What seems most likely to you at this point, Khaviv? Is it a right-wing religious government led by Likud? Is it a center-left government supported by the Arab party and led by blue and white? Or, like the main parties, do you think we're headed for a fourth election? If I was to put money on it, uh, which I I never have put money on it, just to clarify, (laughs) um, I don't trust my own estimations that much. And whether Likud and Blue and White can sit together is not a decision made by a million voters. It's a decision made by exactly two people. And so it's fairly easy to predict, you know, what a million people will do. Uh, And it's extraordinarily difficult to the point of impossible to predict what two people will do. Hmm. Uh, And that's the problem with predicting this thing. We know exactly what the next Knesset will look like, give or take a single percentage point of margin of error. What we don't know is how probably four or five individuals who are the heads of specific parties uh, will respond to that new situation, to that continued deadlock. Um, I would say this. It has become much, much more difficult. They couldn't form a unity government in April. They couldn't do it again in September. It is more difficult today than it was then. They have defined their campaigns against each other. Blue and white has campaigned for clean government, while Netanyahu faces corruption charges, 
Well, since the September race, those corruption charges have turned into an indictment filed in a court and a trial date set for uh, two weeks after Election Day, March 17. So blue and white is now much higher up that tree, so to speak, much harder for it to overcome its campaign promise not to sit with an indicted prime minister now that he's actually indicted and going on trial. And Likud has circled the wagons around Netanyahu and come out with a campaign that tries to depict Blue and White's leaders as incompetent and dangerous and left-wing and irresponsible. Uh, right, Three of the four top members of Knesset in Blue and White are former heads of the Israeli army. The head of Blue and White, Benny Gantz, was appointed the head of the army by Netanyahu. So um, I don't think Netanyahu himself believes that these army chiefs are, uh, you know, are bad people. But that's certainly what the campaign has focused on and has claimed uh, for the last year. So I don't expect a unity government. I therefore don't expect a government led by Netanyahu, and I don't expect a government led by Gantz, and I fully expect a fourth election. I expect a fourth election, barring a couple of things, dramatic things that could change that. For example, if Likud starts slipping in the polls, if we suddenly see turnout drop, for one side or the other, because it's just exhausting at this point. Um, If we suddenly see growing disgust among the Likud base over the fact that this man is actually going to trial uh, for behavior that even if he claims it's not criminal, nobody questions whether it's unethical, the corruption charges against him. Um, So unless we see a drop in turnout on one side or the other, we remain frozen and fourth election is extremely likely, with the caveat that exactly two people can change that. Well, Khabib, we'll all be watching on Monday to see what the millions of people will be doing and then watching the much longer question of what will those two or three or four people, what will they ultimately do? Thank you for shedding some light on this ever puzzling situation for us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us this week at our Shabbat table is Jacob Magid, a reporter at the Times of Israel. Jacob, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Um, So I just got back from Paris, uh, where I was covering a conference of the European Jewish Association on combating anti-Semitism. And I found it pretty interesting to hear some of the perspectives of various European Jewish leaders uh, who seem to come at at this issue from a very different angle than their counterparts in the U.S., at least the ones that I've spoken to. And there was much more of a willingness to include Israel in conversations on anti-Semitism and an assertion among the leaders that I spoke to that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism in every way. And what I found interesting about this is that it's an outlook that seems much less prevalent in the U.S., where American Jews that I'm familiar with are more open to criticizing the policies of Israel or the Israeli government, and therefore might be uncomfortable with actively including the topic of Israel in discussions on anti-Semitism, where many U.S. Jewish leaders and activists might be more worried to ask for the Israeli government's help in combating anti-Semitism, fearing that it may lead to the equating Um, by even well-meaning people of American Jews to the Jewish state. Many of the leaders I spoke with at the conference, be it from the UK, France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, welcomed such a prospect. And they argued that anti-Semites already make that equation and that the benefits that Israel can provide them in terms of advice on security or funding outweighs the risks of them not getting involved. 
That was just uh, got me thinking a lot about how this topic is very much approached differently uh, around the world. Even though obviously uh, people like to say that it's the same kind of anti-Semitism no matter where, but it seems like the tactics are very different and the conversation is pretty different on the issue in Europe. And it was interesting to hear and I look forward to speaking about that at my Shabbat table. Interesting. Manio, what about you? So, Sefi, Jacob, after our kids go to bed on Shabbat, my husband and I will discuss, though we will not watch, the new Nazi revenge series Hunters, starring Al Pacino. We will not watch because, after reading about all the debates swirling around the show, I already tuned in to the first episode, totally intrigued, totally ready to see some blood spilled to avenge the atrocities of the Holocaust. I was totally ready to cheer on the Jewish heroes and heroines against a retro late 70s backdrop. And then after about 30 minutes, I turned it off. Why? Well, because there's a lot of blood spilled and a (laughs) lot of bones crushed. In fact, it was that crunching sound in particular that prompted me to turn it off. (laughs) It was like watching Goodfellas if Goodfellas was filled with Jewish slurs and the mobsters murdered everyone's grandparents. I do not need that. Um, Real life, real history offers enough darkness and violence to grapple with. But let me be clear. I am all about creativity and artistic license and free speech. I do not condemn the show's creator for all this violence. Hey, if this is what it takes to help some people comprehend the horrors of the Holocaust and the treatment of Jews after that, then so be it. But the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum does not think all the show's artistic license is necessary. In fact, they have taken issue with one particularly grisly scene, which I must admit I didn't even make it to or I didn't even want to fast forward to search for it. In that scene, the Nazi hunter's dawn, if you will, Al Pacino, recalls how when he was in Auschwitz, guards forced the prisoners to play a human chess game. When a prisoner was bumped from his square on the board, the prisoner who took his place was forced to stab him to death or be shot. While the guards forced Jewish prisoners into many cruel games in Auschwitz, this was not one of them. And the museum has faulted this fiction as dangerous foolishness. Auschwitz was full of horrible pain and suffering documented in the accounts of survivors, the museum said on Twitter. Inventing a fake game of human chess is not only dangerous foolishness and caricature, it also welcomes future deniers. We Mm. honor the victims by preserving factual accuracy. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting conundrum. In today's climate, where real, actual pieces of journalism, facts, not fiction, are dubbed fake news and made-up memes are circulated and accepted as fact on social media, should the creators of historical fiction be mindful of those blurred lines and dial it back? When it comes to something as sensitive as the Holocaust, one of the darkest moments in our world's history that some do actually deny, should artists and authors stick with the original source material? Now, in defense of Hunters, Amazon provides show notes for individual frames of the series that include historical facts and demonstrate that some research did go into the making of the show. For example, during a scene where one of the Nazi villains is sipping on Fanta, the show notes explain that the soda pop was invented in Germany when an embargo blocked the ingredients for making Coca-Cola. The opening scene of the show was inspired by an actual example of a politically connected Circassian refugee living in Patterson, New Jersey, who was ID'd in the 1970s as a former Nazi. And the numbers tattooed on prisoners' arms in Auschwitz went no higher than 202,499. Characters in the series all have numbers slightly higher, so no real person's number is used. Hmm. The notes also make clear that the human chess game was not an actual thing at Auschwitz. My objections to the show get down to taste and preference. To me, the stories of the real-life Nazi hunters are fascinating without all the bloodshed and bone crushing. I would prefer to read about them. The Murderers Among Us, about Simon Wiesenthal, 
Hunting the Truth about Serge and Beata Klarsfeld and Andrew Nagorski's book, The Nazi Hunters. Those real-life accounts of the efforts to hold accountable the countless criminals who escape prosecution at Nuremberg, that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table this week. Zephy, how about you? Well, I appreciate the forward, one of America's most venerable Jewish newspapers. It's become a flashpoint for a controversy lately caught between its traditional critics, center and right-wing Jews who think the paper is too progressive, and a newly vocal group of far-left Jews who attack the forward for occasionally featuring right-leaning voices as counterpoints in the opinion section. But even I, a fan of the forward, was shocked and disappointed to read an anonymous piece that they published on Friday. The headline was, I've taught at six Jewish day schools, they're preaching dual loyalty to Israel. The author, who, again, didn't even write under their real name, claims to have taught at six Jewish day schools in the New York area in the past 12 years. Now, that should have been our first tip-off, that this person isn't particularly worth listening to. My siblings and I attended the same Jewish lower school and high school from kindergarten through 12th grade. Altogether, my family was in those two schools for about two decades, and let me tell you, the best teachers tended to be the ones who were there for that entire time, or much of it, not the ones who were changing schools every two years like Anonymous. But setting Anonymous's teaching ability aside, do their arguments have merit? Well, let's see. Among the evidence they offer to support their claims that Jewish schools preach dual loyalty are that many classes are taught in Hebrew, that schools observe Israel's Memorial Day more significantly than they do Veterans Day, and that many schools commit to, quote, seek to instill in our students an attachment to the state of Israel and its people. Let's go one by one. First of all, Jewish day schools are, first and foremost, Jewish day schools. So it's just not weird that there would be an academic focus on the Hebrew language because it is the language of the Jewish people. And besides, if you're studying the Torah and rabbinic texts, exactly what language should you learn them in, if not Hebrew? Next, Anonymous's bizarre claim about schools caring more about Israel's Memorial Day than about Veterans Day? That's right, not America's Memorial Day, but Veterans Day, which isn't about fallen soldiers at all, but about Americans who have served. So, okay, Let's pretend that they meant to reference the analogous Memorial Day. It's still an incredibly odd claim. It is a failing in American society to be sure that Memorial Day is a time for barbecues and mattress sales, not remembrance. Contrast America with our massive civil-military divide and our faraway wars to Israel, where every Israeli personally knows soldiers and civilians who have lost their lives in war and terror. The way that Jewish day schools observe Israel's Memorial Day and American Memorial Day is normative for each country. On Israel's, the school community mourns. On America's, they take the day off. Finally, what about that claim that schools, quote, seek to instill in students an attachment to the state of Israel and its people? In a word, great. Attachment to Israel and to the six million Jews who live there is a critical component of Jewish peoplehood and the Jewish story. Jews have been attached to Israel for thousands of years. Indeed, that's why there is an Israel today. But feeling attached to Israel is not the same as being insufficiently loyal to America, which is Anonymous's shameful charge. Even before the rebirth of modern Israel, anti-Semites have long accused Jews of being more loyal to a Jewish collective than to the country in which they live. 
It is deplorable that someone who buys into this anti-Semitic lie is teaching in our schools, even if they can't manage to hang around at one of them for very long. And it is regrettable that the forward chose to publish this offensive drivel, especially under the cloak of anonymity. There are usually lots of Jewish day school alumni at my Shabbat table, and our loyalties should never come into question. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 